Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. During the passing of the peace, Malcolm joked with me about having cold hands. And I'm not normally one who has cold hands, except for Sundays that I preach, which means about 40 Sundays out of the year. And it's, it dawned on me that, you know, I have never had a good night's sleep on Saturday. I don't say that for you to feel sorry for me, but just so you recognize that there's the burden to the word of the Lord. It's not my burden. It's shared by anyone who's preaching the word of God uh, faithfully as the word of God each week. And it's all the more reason why we as the people of God must take seriously when we come to God's house to hear his word. And it's a great refreshment to me to have Pastor Nathan share the pulpit with me in this way. And having him take two and three weeks at a time really helps revive me, quite frankly, as I sit under the preaching of the word myself and get nervous again for the time I've got to come back. I've never stopped getting nervous about preaching. I hope I never do. Hebrews chapter 3. We have looked at the superiority of Jesus over all things. In particular, we've looked at the angels and the prophetic office, two things that are very important to the Hebrew people. This church being primarily Jewish, this would strike their hearts. And so the first two chapters are set up to make Jesus the focus. In fact, the focus of Jesus Christ in this book will not change today. It will not change any day that we are preaching from the book of Hebrews. And really, if one is faithful, the focus of every text is ultimately Jesus Christ, either by extension or directly. And here again today, in Hebrews 3, we have the superiority of Jesus. However, today's passage is focusing on someone who is very near and dear to the hearts of the Jewish people, Moses. It's true, the text is classically preached as Christ's superiority to Moses. I may even say that in your study Bible. That's important, but we already got that from the fact that he's superior to the prophets. There's something more at work here to remind us not to idolize men. That's the reason. He talks about the prophetic office and Jesus' superiority to it, talks about the angelic hosts and his superiority to them, But now he's reminding us by using Moses as the prime example, the one who is the prophet of prophets to the people of God, reminding them that it is Christ who is the master over all things, something we desperately still need to hear today. Hear God's word in Hebrews 3, the first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Let us pray. Father, later in this same glorious book, we read that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Lord, we look forward to that supernatural action in our life as we consider your word this morning for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you would look up in the dictionary the term or the phrase cult of personality or personality cult even, you would find something like this. It is a term for what is perceived to be excessive adulation of a single living leader. Personality cults usually characterize states or countries which have recently experienced revolutions. The reputation of a single leader often characterized as a liberator or savior of the people elevates that leader to an almost divine level. The leader's picture appears everywhere, as do statues and other monuments to the leader's greatness and wisdom. The leader's slogans and other quotes cover massive billboards, and books containing the leader's speeches and writings fill up the bookstores in the libraries. The level of flattery can reach highs which may appear absurd to outsiders." Man, my brothers and sisters, is prone to hero worship. This is true of the entirety of recorded existence. It is no different today. Some of the worst despots in the history of the world were people that started out with the reverence of those who they led. Think of this in history. Ivan the Terrible in Russia. Joseph Stalin later in the, in the Soviet Union. Mao Zedong in China. Papadoc, Duvalier in Haiti, Idi Amin in Uganda, Ceausescu in Romania, and of course Hitler in Germany. Do you know that those people that I just mentioned account for millions and millions of people who died? Not just a thousand here, millions. Mao Zedong, 23 million people are predicted to have died under his rule. These are people who started as heroes for their people, as revolutionaries, liberators. There are also those leaders in world history that are immortalized by their countrymen for what they have done good, at least what is perceived to be good by them. Alexander the Great was referred to as king of Macedonia, emperor of Prussia, even declared pharaoh of Egypt. In 336 BC, King Philip was killed and Alexander the Great ascended to the throne. He conquered in 12 years most of the known world and is thus called Alexander the Great. We love to idolize people. Julius Caesar, still considered one of the most important rulers of the history of the world. He became an intelligent and brilliant military leader over time. He made Rome the capital of a vast empire and brought them to their prominence. People love to idolize the house of Caesar, as it's called. Napoleon rose from obscurity. When you study his life, it is impressive, to say the least, how many armies he crushed in his time. For 20 years, at the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century, European nation after European nation took him on and lost. And he's still considered to be great among those he once led. Man has always, always, always demonstrated a propensity to idolize certain human beings. Maybe they did something good, maybe they didn't, but for some reason we like to immortalize those who are mere mortals. Think of our own country and what we do with people. Robert E. Lee, if you're from the South, and if you're from anywhere else, Abraham Lincoln. John F. Kennedy. I'm amazed how much people revere him, despite really the short list of legislative accomplishments he's he's had. But the nature of his death and so forth has made him really an idol of sorts. And his family has kind of this House of Kennedy name in our country. 
kind of a royal family they're referred to in our land. Martin Luther King lived just a short while but sounded a large blast against racial injustice. His legacy still goes on, still is powerful in our land. Ronald Reagan, to hear some people talk, you'd think he'd won the Cold War, crushed communism, and set the masses free in all sorts of land all by his lonesome. Great man, from what I could tell, but it's amazing how much bigger they get after they die, how much bigger the picture of them becomes. You know what's sad is during the TV generation which you and I live, you know what we've done? We've transferred that celebrity or that hero worship or that cult of personality from people that actually did something to celebrities who know very little from what I can tell by reading the sound bites and quotes. Yet nevertheless, did you ever see the old footage of Elvis Presley concerts? Now, I know it happens today probably with modern pop stars, but I am always amazed and embarrassed for humanity when I see women and girls hyperventilating at the sight of the king. That's what we do with people. The king. Guys grease their hair back, get leather jackets. They want to be like the king. Ha ha. But you know it's true. Just turn on your television at any time and see the hero worship, the celebrity worship that goes on. We love to worship people. You know what the number one show in America is right now? American Servant. No, that show wouldn't do too well. Who's the greatest servant in America? How well would that go every week? American Idol. That is the most popular show in America today. Do you know, even Christians do this. I dare anyone here to come to General Assembly with me, the PCA's General Assembly, any one of you, and wear a big placard that says, John Calvin was a heretic. I dare you to do that, because you'll have 2,000 elders jump on you at that time, four of which will be from this church. We do it too. We put names up. We get awful close to hero worship when we start naming people, Apollos, Cephas, whoever the division might fall under. What we have in our text is about Jesus' superiority over Moses. That's true. But even more so, against the human propensity to idolize certain human beings, this passage reinforces the mastery of Christ, particularly over his church. Over his church. The first two chapters give us this general superiority, but now we look at the specific superiority. Look at verse 1 as we are given the only imperative in these six verses. That is, the only command appears in verse 1. For application purposes, here is the command. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, here it is, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore is referring back to what has been built up already concerning Christ. Holy brothers is a reference to the church. It's a general statement, like the saints. It's not saying that everyone in the church is uh, uniformly holy. It's just saying that the body of God's covenant people are called the holy ones. They're ecclesia, meaning the called out ones. Holy brothers. The church. You share in a heavenly calling. That is, you're a supernatural organization. This is not like other organizations. This is not a health club. This is not the Rotary Club. This is not your workplace. This is a heavenly, divine institution that you've been called into, out of the world, into the church. You who share in a heavenly calling. And here is the command. What are we to do as the church? We are to consider Jesus. And please understand what this does not mean. Consider Jesus is not this passive offer for you to kind of weigh who Jesus is. That's not what it means. 
It has the same meaning that is in Luke 24, where Jesus tells us to consider the ravens, and then later, consider the lilies in all their splendor. It's to recognize what they are. It's not just to do a weighing. It's not this anemic little Jesus who kind of invites you to check me out. No, this is who he is. You need to consider it. You need to ponder who Christ truly is. You need to attentively weigh all there is said and revealed about Christ. You need to focus upon Christ. You need to strive to know Christ. You need to study Christ. That's what it means to consider Jesus. The author uses this term in a way that focuses us on the particulars of who Jesus is. In an amazing way, of course it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, two titles are referred to concerning Jesus. All you could say about Jesus in the revelation of Scripture, two terms really sum it all up. Now, we often think of prophet, priest, and king. That's excellent. But what the writer here does is give these two wide designations for Jesus that help us to consider him. First, it refers to him as an apostle. Second, it refers to him as high priest. Think about what these terms mean. Apostle is not usually used with Jesus. And here it's its general meaning, one who represents, one who is sent forth from. So he is, in that sense, a messenger from God to man. That's what apostle means. From God to man. What does high priest man mean? Man to God. The high priest represents man to God. So these two terms are bookends on all that's true about Christ. He is a representative of God to man, and he is man's representative to God as the high priest. So consider Jesus and all that happens in between those bookends. Apostle and high priest, consider him. He is the high priest of our what? Our confession. This is seeking to show us that there is a body of knowledge to be known about our Savior. It's not enough in the long term of your spiritual development to simply always say that Jesus loves me, this I know. That's crucial. I don't want to belittle that at all. We have to at least have that to understand Christ. But we must move from the milk of the word onto the meat of the word. And there's a whole lot more about Jesus in the scripture than just that. He's the apostle and he's the high priest. And all that comes between that is our confession. Confessions are important, brothers and sisters. What you confess will shape you. Creeds, what you believe, shapes you. Ideas have consequences and they shape how you live and what choices you make. What you believe about God will determine the choices you make in the most minute details of your life. So our confession is vitally important. And what is our confession to be made up, made up of? The truth about Christ. And where is that revealed? The scriptures. That's where you learn who Christ is. That's what your confession is. That's how you consider Jesus. And might I be so bold as to say that as a church, we have the greatest confession that's been made humanly to summarize what the Bible teaches about Christ. I've weighed this. I think it's really the greatest statement that we have seen. Human statement, and it always is subject to Scripture, but turn in the back of your hymnal for a moment and see if you don't agree. Remember, we're talking about the apostle and the high priest, these two bookends, and all that Jesus is. Look at page 853 in the back of your hymnal. There we have, in the Westminster Confession, remember what a confession is. A confession is a confession concerning what we are to believe what the scriptures say we are to believe. And this is an orderly way so that we might have a means to study these details, comparing them with scripture at all times, 
But look at what it says about Christ, the one we are to consider. Section 1, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. Do you see the scriptural language that is woven into this? That's what makes it such a a wise document. The prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, an heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. All words that are in the scriptures. And it brings it together for us so that we have our confession, our biblical confession about Christ. Section two, the son of God, the the second person in the Trinity, being very... And eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father did, when the fullness of time has come, take upon him man's nature. Section 3, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasure of the wisdom and knowledge, and so on. Section 4, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. And so on. Section 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father. And it goes on in this glorious majesty throughout eight sections total. And all it does is summarize what the scripture says about Christ. The scriptures is our focus, is our, our life. But this confession helps us to remember what the scriptures say so we don't constantly feed on milk and never move to meat. In fact, I think of one of, the re- one of the reasons why the church is so anemic in our day is that our view of Christ, our Christology, has gotten so weak that we buy this idea that Jesus is somehow passively and, and embarrassingly asking people to come. No, he's the Lord of the universe and he does what he's sent to do and he brings people to himself. That's the true view of Christ. That's what he does. And when the church starts preaching this again, that's when we'll see revival. When Christ is on the throne again, as he actually is, that's when you'll start seeing things change. Not when Christ is molded into man's image. That's the last thing we need. We need a savior, not a slouch. And so our confession, considering Jesus, is of the utmost importance. It would be impossible to over over-communicate how important it is that Christ be considered, focused upon, pondered, and weighed. He could not have too much accolade, too much credit, too much glory. The writer of Hebrews has to address this, especially as he moves to the second point of his statement in chapter 3, because he's speaking to people who have an extremely high esteem for Moses. Possibly some there had even too high of a view of Israel's great prophet. Look at Verses two, verse 2 down to verse 6. Starting at verse 2, we see that Christ is more glorious than any man, even Moses, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that is Jesus, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. This is an extremely strong endorsement of Moses, so don't misunderstand what the writer is doing. It refers to Moses as faithful. So we know he's a faithful prophet. In fact, we know that Moses is the prophet of prophets. He's the man when it comes to prophecy. All the other prophets got their revelation from God through visions and through dreams. Moses, on the other hand, according to Numbers, chapter 12, verse 6 and through 8, talked to him face to face. 
Exodus 33.11, thus the Lord used to, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Deuteronomy 34.10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was faithful and he had a direct connection with God in a way that other prophets did not have. So he starts out by affirming what is true about Moses. And he quotes here, Moses who was faithful in all God's house from Numbers 12, he is faithful in all my house, speaking of Moses. So he's given this radical endorsement by God, unlike any other prophet. And what we also have revealed for us in chapter 2 is this very, very important lesson. That God's house is one house. Moses is a servant in God's house. Paul is a servant in the same house. There's not two different houses. There's not Israel house, church house. There's God's house. And God is the builder and Moses is a servant in it. You are a servant in the same house. One house. This is very important to understanding Hebrews correctly. In fact, the continuity of the church in all ages of history is a fundamental assumption in this book. And we have it here illustrated by using the phrase, all God's house, the unity of God's people. Moses is a servant. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house himself. Jesus has been given more glory than Moses. You see how the author builds up this case about the superiority of Jesus and then enters into a sensitive subject with the hearers when he goes to say that Christ, as great as Moses is, and as much as he has delivered from me to you, Jesus is the most glorious of all. Jesus, worthy of that kind of glory. Consider the comparison. And only Moses, you would even dare to compare to Christ. But still, consider how he fails in reaching the glory of Christ. Moses was a man of God, whereas Christ was and is God himself. Moses was a fallen descendant of Adam. And though he be the most humble man on the face of the earth in his time, Christ was purely sinless. He was completely holy. He was the second Adam. Moses was a prophet. For whom God spake, used Moses for sure, spoke to him face to face. Yet Christ himself is the truth. God himself speaking. I mean, this is not a fair contest. Moses is great. Don't get me wrong. He's got glory. But it doesn't compare to Christ. Moses executed priestly functions. Whereas Christ is the great high priest and the sacrifice. He doesn't need to make a sacrifice for himself. He is it. Moses delivered Israel from Egypt, the great redemption of Israel, spoken about throughout the Old Testament and referred to in the New. And as great as that redemption is and was, Christ delivers his people ultimately from eternal damnation. Moses led Israel across the wilderness, but not into Canaan. Christ is actually, this day, bringing many sons to glory. Yes, Moses is an important part of God's revelation. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that revelation. And he is the most glorious. That's why verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What this means is that men can appear great and be given great credit, but in the end it is God who builds things. You know, we refer to Martin Luther as the father of the Reformation. 
but he'd be the first to tell you that it's God who moved, Revela- moved the Reformation. We call George Washington the father of America, or William Shakespeare the father of the English language, and so on. Some people even say uh, the house that Ruth built is Yankee Stadium. The fact is God's sovereign over all of it. No man does anything apart from the sovereign action of God, no matter what it is. That's what it means to say every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. As a faithful servant in God's house, Moses gave testimony to what he was commissioned to give testimony to, Christ. It was in its seed form in his day, but he was preaching Christ. As he showed forth the law in the sacrificial system, there was no better way to illustrate before the Redeemer's coming how bad our sin is and how much we need a sacrifice. He preached Christ. He was faithful in this. For any prophet of God, small p or capital P, to be faithful, they must preach Christ, not themselves. The prophetic office has always been the same in this, to prepare the way for Christ. Well, not as vivid as John the Baptist, who said, literally, I'm here to prepare the way. Moses, though, did prepare the way for the coming of Christ. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses, as a servant, Christ is a son. Do you see the difference? The ultimate reason Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses is his position over the house of God. That's how it breaks down. God's house is the church in all ages. The builder of God's house is God himself. The caretaker or the Lord over the house is Christ. The servant in the house is Moses and you by extension. We have our place, and it's a glorious place, but it is not more glorious than the Lord of the house, who is Christ. And this picture of using house is common throughout the scripture. Something as general as Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors does their labor in vain, all the way to more specifically in 1 Peter, where the church is referred to as a spiritual house or building. This imagery is throughout the scriptures. The house that God is building through the lordship of his son and the servanthood of the people that are members of that house or servants of that house, Moses being one of those, like us. You might say that he put his sandals on the same way we put them on. Only Christ is truly great. No other person will rob glory from God. In an oft-used reference, but yet very poignant, you may have heard the story of King Louis, who was ruler for 72 years, which in his day in the 1700s is pretty amazing. 72 years. And if you think the Pope's funeral that we just witnessed a few uh, weeks ago was filled with glamour and pomp, you haven't seen anything to seen the way those kings would have themselves glorified after they died. In fact, he's the one that's famous for saying, I am the state. That's the King Louis we're talking about. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and at his funeral, he had himself placed in a fully gold coffin, solid gold. And he had the cathedral, he commanded the cathedral be dimmed completely dark, and just his gold coffin stood in the front, and he wanted one candle to be over the coffin just to show how great he was. In one of those score one for the clergy moments in church history, the bishop goes up to it and snuffs out the candle. The place is dark, and he says, only God is great. What a beautiful picture. It's still the same. Moses did wonderful things. Many of the church fathers should be remembered for what they did for the glory of Christ. 
for the glory of Christ. Only Christ deserves that kind of glory. And ultimately, the text ends with a very poignant point, at least verse 6 does. And this is a concept or an idea that will come throughout the book of Hebrews. Perseverance is the test of reality. Look at the second part of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In other words, if you're truly his, you will show through the perseverance of your faith, faith which is given by him, of course, that you are truly his house. Perseverance, then, is the test of reality. It's not what earns something. It's just the test of what is true. If you say I'm God's child, then perseverance will show it. I didn't say perfection. People misunderstand. We talk about perseverance of the elect or perseverance of the saints. We don't mean that they are perfect. We mean that they persevere in their trust in Christ. That's what it means to be saved, is constant trust and reliance upon Christ's finished work. That will manifest itself in your life. That's what we're saying. In fact, there are two, I think, equally erroneous teachings that just pervade, especially our day. The first one is the idea that God could save someone and then just decide to remove that salvation at any time. Essentially nullifying passage after passage that speaks about the finished work on behalf of particular people. That, that radical idea that he's fickle about it, you could do something wrong and then lose your salvation. It's based on the idea it's all up to man to choose something, so therefore it is equally unstable and uh, possible to lose if it's based on man. But there's another teaching that's gone through that has paraded itself as some form of Calvinism even. There was a book several years ago called Once Saved, Always Saved. And this popular writer basically said, not much different than what I just described, that it's up to you to choose, it's your sovereign will that chooses, But once you choose, he can't let you go. He's obligated now. It's like a formula approach. That is just as heinous as the first thing I said, the first teaching I said. What the Bible teaches comes from our words of assurance. Blessed be the God Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Here's the gospel. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us, then we will be holy and blameless. He chose us, so we will live a certain way. If we don't live a certain way, or we don't care to live a certain way, if we're not even in the struggle about it, don't assume that you're okay. Because it will have its result when he places his hand upon you. And let me tell you, I understand if you're struggling with sin, I'm not trying to remove your assurance. In fact, if you're struggling with sin, if you're convicted by the sin you're committing, that's God working on you to stop it. Because he loves you. Because he wants you to stop it. But if you're just roguely going through life saying, I'm happy the way I am, I prayed the prayer so I'm in, you're missing the message of perseverance that is here. Look what it says. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Perseverance is the test of reality. It's the test of what is true. Where is your confidence? Is it in your works or is it in your Savior, Christ? Our confidence and our boasting in our hope is okay. It's okay to be confident. It's okay to boast in our hope when it's in Christ, not in yourself or anyone else. 
I would like to conclude by reminding you of the fact that this is not unusual, that man would idolize other men. In fact, Paul writes to correct this in 1 Corinthians in a a most amazing passage. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. A, A young church that struggled deeply with sin now is coming to a knowledge of the Savior and growing, yet there was this divisiveness that went among the body. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, not, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He's noting this terrible division that was going on in the church, this propensity to even take Christians and line ourselves up under, behind them. This passage is all about the fact that it's Christ who's most glorious. And we, as representatives of him, both in official ordained capacities, you as ambassadors, ought to always be decreasing that he might increase. It's not what you're doing. It's what he's doing that we should always put to the forefront. I am not of Augustine or Luther. I'm not of Calvin or Knox. I'm not of Edwards or Spurgeon. I'm not of Wilson or Sproul. I am of Christ. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1. The source of our hope and boasting, my dear brothers and sisters, is not human. It's divine. It's Christ. And if we are indeed his house, we will hold fast to our confidence and our blessing and our boasting and our hope. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us the glorious one, Christ. He is not merely a man. He is the God-man. Lord Jesus, we glorify your name for your glory, for you are the Lord of this house, the church. And Holy Spirit, for your ministry of applying the work of the Son, the will of the Father, I pray that we would be a people who constantly and consistently are considering and pondering and weighing who our Savior is, that we might be effective ambassadors for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.